Hi, it's Katie, and this is an episode of the Nursepreneur Podcast. And before we get started, I do want to put a disclaimer on because I have an attorney that is on our show today. And even if she says something that sounds exactly like it's pertinent to you, you need to get your own attorney advice. Um, But I am very excited to have Wendy Carson Smith. She is an attorney and the chief um, operating officer of Carson Company Healthcare Consulting. She has worked at state, federal, and national levels for over 25 years, and she has worked tirelessly for advanced practice nurses for practice and regulation. She has written way too many articles to name. She's been part of the American Nurses Association, Nurse Practitioners, NP, World News, AJN, written chapters in all kinds of books, and she is a non-nurse recognized for advocacy in APN issues and I have to say I don't like the word non-nurse you are an honorary nurse and has also started the Let's Talk podcast. Uh, Wendy you know I always forget that you're not a nurse because you've done so much for nurses (laughs) you know and I I always think that you are a nurse but how did you get so involved with nurses and and how did this all get started? Uh, Well it started with my Aunt Benny my aunt benny um is an lpn a lifelong lpn she and miss ida may and miss ida may was my neighbor who was an rn and they were some of the most dignified hard-working zealous women about health that i have ever met um i remember miss ida may wearing her cap because she came through at a time and space where there were caps for schools of nursing and in her dress whites. My aunt always wanted to become an RN, but she was never able to do so. When she was able to do so, she had retired from, um, she had retired from, from a, um, uh, her job as a, um, as a psychiatric nurse assistant. And she was a little too old. So those were my inspirations. That wonderful, beautiful white, that uh, wonderful approach to work. They were diligent. These ladies did not play. <laughs> <laughs> they took it with them wherever they went. That's why I love nurses. Now, that started it. Now, what pushed it through with the advanced practice nurses was that I was working for a council member, and that council member had legislation in place to address um, barriers to practice. The docs came in, and they said that they wanted to, they wanted to, um, um, change the collaboration requirements. I was amazed because everybody wanted to change those collaboration requirements and they didn't want to have a discussion with the nurses about it. It was almost as if the advanced practice nurses did not exist. And um, I saw it as a very feminist issue of, of power. I continue to see it as a power issue. And that is why I work so very hard because the inequities that exist 
between advanced practice nurses and physicians are absolutely crazy given their reliance upon nurses and advanced practice nurses for their work. I don't understand it, I don't respect it, and I think that it is terribly insulting. Now that is, that's, that's my story. I can get up on the rooftop and yell because I just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and we really appreciate all the work that you've done um, for advanced practice nurses as well. I mean, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Um, have you always had your own business? Have you always run your own business? No, I have not. I, as a matter of fact, I started this um, after I left the Nurses Association, in part because my father had Alzheimer's and dementia, and I wanted to be accessible to help my mother with him. So like a whole lot of, of, of baby boomers, I went back and forth for approximately 10 years helping my mother take care of my father, as did my brother. We alternated months that we would go home and we provided her with additional support. But that was the genesis for me setting up my own business. So your background with nurses gave you kind of that um, the concept of what your business would be. Uh, so you're, you're, you do healthcare consulting, right? I but do healthcare consulting primarily for nurses. I ended up backhanded running into um, the home health industry. I think um, my friends thought that it would be a good match with me going back and forth. And it has been, frankly. I like um, working with those in the home health industry. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done within that industry. And I am actively working on both the policy side as well as on the practical implementation side associated with that. That's how I got into that. But I still lobby for nurses. I'm actually working with the Virginia Council of Nurse Practitioners and I've been down there almost two years working with them on their legislation. We got through a version of full practice authority. And now what we are doing is that we are trying to set everything in place because within two years, they're supposed to review the legislation and determine whether or not all nurses can have full practice authority. Right now, what they have in place is nurses who have been practicing for at least five years will be able to have full practice authority. That that's awesome. That's that's they're so lucky to have you helping them with that. Um, so, in terms of nurse practitioners starting businesses or even nurses in general, like what do you think the landscape is like for that? Do you think it's a, a good time for them to do it? Or, you know, what is kind of the, the pros and cons for nurses to start a business? Well, I've always thought that with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, it gave us a beautiful platform for nurses to um, go into business. I think now with there, there are some questions out there in the universe about the Affordable Care Act, which again, limit reimbursement. And I am more concerned about nurses getting full pay for their services than the, um, I 
this is awful. I call it the measly 85%. (laughs) And so um, we need to um, look at and affirmatively address that issue of 85% versus 100% before nurses head out into into practice uh, for themselves. I think it is a noble uh, gesture to go into practice for yourself but a lot of times doctors will frame advanced practice nurses as a cheap alternative. The alternative should neither be considered cheap, but instead should be considered quality because of the way advanced practice nurses practice. And I am, um, and I want that highlighted and I don't want us to say, oh, well, I can do it for that 85% just to get that 85%. Even though I have had some friends who have become quite wealthy and quite successful off of that 85%. That is not the point. The point is you should get paid for the services that you provide. And those services are worth 100% reimbursement because even at 100% reimbursement, with the way advanced practice nurses or nurse practitioners practice, you tend to be less expensive because you are more comprehensive in terms of the care. That overall assessment is done very differently from a physician assessment. The follow-up that comes up is, is much more comprehensive. And then there are things that you teach the family that don't require additional reimbursement, that docs don't take the time to do. So I think it's a beautiful model of care provided, but we need to make sure it is valued properly. Right, absolutely. And you know, I love that, uh, you know, because I, I remember really being told that the 80, you know, you get told that that you get paid at 85% and it does kind of make you almost feel like you're only doing 85% of the job, like you are somehow lesser than what the physician's doing. And it's been a mindset change mm-hmm. uh, for nurse practitioners. So, you know, really appreciate that you, you're you advocating uh, for that 100% and also having nurses believe that they're worth that 100% uh valuation uh, to get paid because that's really important too. (laughs) When the Affordable Care Act has a provision in it that provides um, that non-physician practitioners should not be discriminated against. I hate that term non-physician practitioner. So please forgive me for using it, but I want to cover the wide swath the acupuncturists, the chiropractors, as well as, I'm not saying non-nursing, I want to call it that wide swath of people are not supposed to be discriminated against in the credentialing uh, process, nor are they to be discriminated against uh, in any insurance plan that um, provides care consistent with the Affordable Care Act. A lot of um, chiropractors and acupuncturists have used these provisions to address the credentialing process. I'm doing something similar in uh, Virginia for nurse practitioners. And I think that we need to sit down and strategically plan where we do it, 
and how we do it. But it's, it's, it's totally about that 100% as opposed to that 85%. Because we need um, our money too. It yeah. takes money to go into business. It takes money to get all of those wonderful medical devices. And above all, it takes money to, play, to pay us staff. Right. It'd be wonderful if we got all that stuff for 85% of the cost. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so what do, what do nurses need to know? If they, let's say that they're going to go into business. Um, what, what do they need to know about the, the legal front of starting their own practice, you know, especially in a state like Virginia where they're not full practice? Well, you need to know if in your state you can set up a professional corporation or if you just can set up a regular standard corporation. A professional corporation is available to about half of the um, nurses, half of the states provide for such. And in doing so, you can... Um, develop relationships with physicians and other healthcare providers and actual share costs and expenses with them. It allows you to set up that truly interdisciplinary practice that you might want to set up, but you might be otherwise prohibited from doing so. And my thing is that if the doctors can set it up in your state, you should be able to petition the Board of Nursing to be able to do something similar in your state so that they can talk to the Board of Medicine about it. Because mm -hmm. in some states, um, the physicians have put in place rules that will not allow for the physician to enter into a practice arrangement but for, a collab but for being a collaborator or a supervisor. Right. Yeah, I actually I ran into that because uh, when I originally set up one of my companies and I went through to get it incorporated, I was told to make it a PLLC, the professional LLC. Mm -hmm. But then when it went to the state, they're like, no, you don't qualify. You, you know that you're not you can't be a PLLC. It just is an LLC. So it was it was very that whole thing was very confusing. And I wasn't sure like what the benefit of a PLLC over an LLC would well, be. The thing is, if you sell your practice sometimes, you could sell it to another provider if you are a, um, a PLLC and you get a better value for it. Sometimes they allow for the division of shares. It depends upon how it is structured in that particular state because every state is different with their rules. But um, that is the next, to me, is the next frontier for us to um, look at because those laws were written prior to the Practice Act. And so the Practice Acts trumped them because the last law on the books is the one that provides the precedent. We need to go back and look at those laws as well and update those laws. There's a group called the National Commission of Uniform State Laws. The National Commission of Uniform State Laws has developed an omnibus uh, corporations law, which has provisions in it related to the professional uh, um, professional corporation. And at first they were very physician oriented. I started lobbying them on my own without pay a long time ago about changing 
those laws as well, because I knew that if they had a model act in place, which was um, not non-discriminatory, it would lead the way. They've never released their model practice act, their model corporate law, for that reason, because people keep coming back, like me and saying, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. <laughs> they, need to be, um, they need to be lobbied on it. They are, every state has two representatives that are appointed to the National Commission of Uniform State Laws. They typically are, um, are lawyers who are appointed to the commission. Find out who in your state is appointed, and let's do a little backhanded lobbying. I, I you know, I, I am uh, a person who uses non-traditional ways of approaching the law to address issues of practice, and I have done that all of my professional career. It's not been so much that they are non-traditional as it has been using the full scope of what is available to me. Uh, I know administrative law well, and I understand uh, uh, organization practices. And so um, when I know there is a quasi-government organization like this National Commission of Uniform State Laws, or even like the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, I delve into what they do. With the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, I looked at some of their forms and made comments on their forms where their forms were physician-based when after we um, started to have nurse practitioners have full authority, those forms were not appropriate. So that type of work is not necessarily seen, quote unquote, as the practice of law. I see it as the practice of law because it is creative. It is using the law because that form is legal. And that form is established, frankly, by Congress because half of the work of the NAIC is authorized through con congressional statute and mandate. And then they make the recommendations which go to the state insurance commissioner. And so I see that as a way of addressing the issue long before it is politicized. Because back in the day, it once it got politicized, it was very hard to get anything out of anybody because the docs and medical society were at the point. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the ways that we we did things. We, we I I would go and look beyond what was there in our face, and look at um and look at exactly what it is we wanted to do. Same thing with the National Practitioner Data Bank and the HIPT Data Bank. I'm still fighting that battle about separating out the nurse practitioners and the nurse anesthetists and teasing everything out. But I made it a, a issue in all of the, their work because I told them we could not get the proper data from them. And I still think that that's one of the places we need to go. The um, VA has its own uh, adverse incident data bank and they track physician data 
but they just started tracking nurse practitioner data. Really? We need to make them, once again, more aware. Those are the differences in what I do constitute what someone else might do. And I think that's what makes me a better healthcare provider, healthcare attorney, and nurse attorney is because I look beyond and look at the ways we can get things done. It's very much a nursing model. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> not stand on a whole lot of protocol. And they go back and look at what is ailing you and what's causing it and let us get to the root cause. It's a root cause analysis. That's all it is. It's going back to the essence of it and figuring out what it is we need to do. So how can, how do, how do, how can nurses help you do what you're doing or how can we help ourselves in this arena? Because it, I mean, it sounds complicated, but at the same time, maybe it's not. Well, it, it all depends. When there is a rulemaking and we say come out and support the rulemaking, come out and support it. You know, back in the 90s, and I hate talking about this stuff because it, it dates me, um, but in the 90s when, when we went to the DEA and we got uh, registration, the only way we were able to get it is that we had over 2,000 nurses and nursing organizations come out and write comments. And we were telling them to follow the states, follow the states in terms of whether the state had full authority. Because you know, back then they wanted to do a licensure where they appended your number to a physician number. Yes, that is exactly what I said. That's what the, you made the face that I made when I first read the rules. I said, uh-uh, this is not going to happen because I knew where we were going. And I knew that if we let this happen, we would be forever. And I use the generic, we, this is when I'm, I'm Wendy Nurse. That, uh, this is, we would be forever caught up with the docs in a mandated collaborative relationship. And I said, if nothing else, everybody's got to get on this train with me, pushing, pulling. I don't care. I don't care about the differences in the different organizations. I don't care about the internal politics and nursing. This is a time we had to fight together. And thank God, everybody else saw it when I kept, because I mean, I was yelling from the roof. <laughs> because I knew, I knew that this was where they were going. And it would have been sealed in stone and we would not have gotten to the place we are today and it would be no Katie out here being the nursepreneur that I love and, and I'm so infatuated with. And that would not have happened. You would have been tied to that doctor. And I think it was a seminal moment in feminism as well as in nursing that we were able to get through that. I think that another moment occurred when the VA rules came out and we were able to push through independent practice at the VA level. When you start to move institutions in that direction, we, we start to, to see change within society. I, I, was, I lobbied the FTC for almost 20 years 
And I would go back when they would have their health care barriers to competition, like every eight or so years. I started back in the early 90s, and I actually had to take off work, Katie. I was working at ANA, and my nurse attorney was a labor attorney. And she did not appreciate the value of going to the FTC. I actually took a leave day to go down. <laughs> Your vacation day. <laughs> now, that's crazy, but that's what I had to do. I had to take a leave day to go down and, and present testimony on barriers to practice. And I had to say that my testimony was not authorized by my employer. Now, you know how insulting that is, but that is, but the thing is, I had someone in the office with me who was not a nurse, she was a labor person, and she didn't understand what I was doing at the time. But I did it because it was more important to me than to wait on the protocol of it. Now, after I did the first set, they didn't put us in their comments that first time. The second set around, I was able to get the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists to testify. And, um, and there were, I think Carolyn went, Carolyn Bupert went and testified. It was about five organizations that picked up the ball. And then my employer allowed me to go in and testify on behalf of the American Nurses Association about it that second time. And we were able to get on the radar of the Federal Trade Commission. So when they started and they had the seminal case with the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners, um, that was a game-changing moment. Now, that North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners case was about dental assistants versus dentists but it is easily applied to our setting as well because they told them that they could not limit the lesser scope of practice artificially. And with that, they were also told they could not develop rules and regulations through the Board of Nursing, I mean, through the Board of Dental Examiners um, because that would, that would limit competition. That, that was a major change and I've used that legislation, the one I've used that court case since that time to back docs off of some of the more onerous provisions they try to put in the Board of Medicine regulations to limit nurse practitioner competition. Right. And, you know, from, and from my perspective too, like this is so important because the ability for us to have a business, like I see a lot of this collaborative practice or, you know, if your physician decides one day that, you know, he wants $5,000 a month instead of a thousand or 10,000, like he could ruin, he can destroy your business with, you know, just a change in attitude or a change in, or if he, you know, God forbid dies or something or, or whatever happens, mm -hmm. your entire business business is resting on that one person or and that is exactly I have seen it I will never forget um, a, a male nurse practitioner called me he had purchased a business on the I think it was on the Kentucky Missouri border it might have been on another border but the thing is that in one place he had to have a collaborator 
and in the other place he had to have a collaborator within a certain mileage limit. This collaboration went across the mileage limit on the on the border because he couldn't put on either side and on the other side nobody would collaborate with him because he bought the practice from a physician who was retiring who didn't sell to somebody else because he couldn't get the money he would have gotten that you know he got more money substantially more money from the nurse practitioner and the guy basically went out of business because he couldn't find a collaborator that is unacceptable in a space and place and time where we are having physician shortage and primary care access issues we are being held hostage by physicians and it's terribly terribly unfair now I want to know exactly how much people are being are paying physicians for collaboration and those terms. I've sent a letter to AA was American Academy of Nurse Practitioners, yes, AANP, asking if I can do a focus group at their next convention because it's important to me to try to find out and to do a national study of how much, it, how much does it actually cost? Um, what are the terms associated with that cost? Because nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. We have differing reports in different states uh, my, my friends at the Virginia Coalition are doing an excellent job surveying their entire state, but everybody doesn't survey their state on the cost of collaboration or supervised practice. I have heard some docs ask for up to 30% of a nurse's net. I have also heard that they are trying to mandate that if there's a referral, that that referral has to go through them as well, which to me is, a, is an anti-kickback and a stark rule violation. So we need to have that done. Now, if you all want to help me do something, get AANP to let me do this focus group. They should help me and underwrite this focus group but we need to do a national study of it because it is truly a barrier to practice if you cannot rely on your agreement with a physician to uh, allow you to go into practice and if your practice is all of a sudden dead one day because that physician wakes up and decides they no longer want to be a collaborating or supervising physician. Right. So not only do you get 85% of the cost of what the value of what you're providing, but you, in that case, that person's paying 30% net. So, I mean, what, what is the point of even being in practice? Like, it's... Exactly. Yeah. And then, too, what what happens when, when that person decides that they don't want to do business with you and they tell the medical society and they do a boycott, but you can't prove the boycott. So you lose your practice and somebody picks up the practice model and just goes ahead. Mm -hmm. That is, you know... That is, is I, I see it as rape, frankly. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is not fair. It is inequitable. And if it's done in any other business, you would have a course of, of, of remediation. You could go somewhere and complain about it and try to get something done. 
as nurses, it is unacceptable that, that you have to accept that type of behavior. Right. Absolutely. And I always thought like when these, so when you talk about the barriers to competition through the FTC, you know, but they're not, they don't provide, they, they're not any kind of legal entity, right? So even though they say a physician collaboration with nurse practitioners is a barrier to competition, there's no like recourse, we couldn't, we can't sue yeah, them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, yes. The Federal Trade Commission is a government uh, entity. They are structured to address antitrust, where the, I meant anti-competition, whereas the Department of Justice is designed to, dis, to address antitrust actions. So if there is a boycott, that is an anti that's an antitrust action and you should be able to get the you should be able to get the department of justice to address that and they may allow your attorney to initiate the action but if it is done in a way that they feel that it will create a national precedent they will intervene into that action the FTC actually with the North Carolina Board of Dental Commissioners went to the Supreme Court and they got a ruling from the Supreme Court that that behavior was anti-competitive. A lot of state attorney generals don't want to deal with it, but it is the law of the land and it can be used around the country. And it is amazing to me that more states have not attempted to use it to change the rules where they are anti-competitive content written into the Board of Medicine's uh, regulations. Mm -hmm. So when the Board of Medicine says that you can, there can only be five collaborators, there's no reason for that arbitrary number. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that can be challenged. Yeah, I remember, I remember that from, because I used to work for the Walmart Care Clinics, and uh, we had a clinics in South Carolina, and it was the physician could only supervise three nurse practitioners, so we had to pay all of these physicians to cover all of our nurse practitioners mm -hmm. and they each get paid, you know, a certain amount. And it was just yeah. like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh -huh. But that's going in South Carolina now. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh -huh. Because of this particular opinion, because they went to the FTC. Oh, uh -huh. good for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, there are, um, if you got mileage limits, if they say you can't collaborate beyond 45 miles, that is a barrier to uh, competition. What we are dealing with in um, Virginia is that they are saying that if you are credentialed through a, uh, if you are, you are credentialed through a health plan or insurer, you have to be paid through your physicians uh, identify your number. What? You cannot use your own identity. I'm just telling you. <laughs> you cannot use your own identifier number. So, 
Oh my God. Another, it's just another spin on the same old story, a barrier to keep somebody from making money. Right. And I don't know why they want to keep you from making money when the bottom line is that when you keep a nurse from making money, you are keeping clients and patients from getting care. If you can't provide the care, why don't you let someone else do it? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. No, it doesn't. Oh my goodness. Um, Wendy, we, we need to end on a, a positive note. <laughs> so tell me something good that's coming, that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about the tech. Well, you know, we can talk about a whole lot of things. We can talk about the, the um, federal legislation where now nurses can write for opioids because, you know, there were different states. Some said they could, some said they could not write opioid um, um, prescriptions. Now, of course, you got limitations like everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, once you go through the training, you can write for, you know, you can write for opioids. We could talk about the legislation that um, has been introduced and is supported by AANP so that nurses can be primary care providers in the home health setting. Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, those things are out there in the universe and looks like it's going to get passed this time. So those are wonderful things that we can talk about. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, no, that's great. What about the podiatry shoes? The diabetic what well, the diabetic shoes? So it was some federal mandate that we couldn't prescribe diabetic shoes or something. Oh, oh no, I don't I think I think they've addressed that one, but let me go back and check that. Yeah. <laughs> go back that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, there's some things that you're just like, this is it sounds like a blue law, it's so silly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't so. know what's happening billing and coding, but it, but slowly but surely the, the coding seems to be changing too. Because at one time coding was very prohibitive and there were certain things that nurse practitioners could not um, could not code for. But that's slowly but surely expanding. So, you know, there are a lot of good things happening out there on the home front. And despite Despite what docs are doing, you you know, like I know, nurses are setting up practices and record numbers, all these new and creative practices. Mm -hmm. I want to know more about the nursing software out in the universe, because I think we need to start studying some of that, because there's a new influx of money from tech for software to aid um, clients, to aid patients. And I want nurses to be a part of that horizon as well. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to get nurses into businesses. So, <laughs> um, Wendy, I really, really appreciate everything that you've talked about today. This is really amazing. It's, it's great stuff. Thank you so much for all your service to nurses and, and what you're doing. It's, I mean... I don't know if we can thank you enough or what we can do for you, but <laughs> your your service is amazing. Just keep providing good care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my mother is in skilled care right now, and, and the nurses are excellent. That's great but, to hear. Yes, just keep providing good care. I'm an old lady. When I get in skilled care, just provide good care to me. <laughs>
<laughs> you will, regardless. And all like that, you know, that is why I love what I do. Because the thing is that I don't create the, the standard of care. You do within your community, and it is a very high standard. I, I don't have to worry about that. So that is what we should all aspire towards. We should, we should hope that the professionals who are working with us are doing their absolute best. And that's why I love what I do. That's why I love working with nurses. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day.